many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. On Out of the Box today, my guest is Daniel Robbins. He's got more than a decade of activism behind him and he's learnt a lot along the way about what makes groups of ordinary people effective in affecting change. Today he's the Western Sydney coordinator of Lock the Gate. Welcome on Out of the Box, Daniel. Thanks, Ash. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what you actually do on the daily with Lock the Gate in your work with them. Yeah, so I've been Western Sydney coordinator of Lock the Gate Alliance for about the last 12 months. And any uh, invasive gas fields or coal mines that are coming close to the Sydney area near our drinking water catchments or near people's homes, I have to work closely with communities to try and um, push those companies out of those areas. And... um, Really, a lot of the time, it's um, just negotiating with with um, businesses and with government and empowering communities to have their say. So, is Western Sydney a particularly big battlefield when it comes to coal seam gas? Because that's where you're you're mainly the coordinator of, right? Yeah, when I started this job, I was uh, pretty surprised to find out that the only commercial gas field anywhere in the world that we could find in such a built-up urban area is in Western Sydney. So there's 144 coal seam gas wells that have been fracked by a company called Halliburton right now, um, just 45 metres from homes in places like Camden, Mount Annan, um, really close to Campbelltown. So a lot of people don't know that, but that's what we're working on at the moment with those families who are being affected health-wise. And there's someone who's going to be going with you when you go over to Paris for the Paris Talks. Uh, and, you know, there's going to be a big anti-fracking movement because a lot of the environmental groups are going to be there. You're off with this lady. And can you tell us a bit about her story? And she's from she's from Camden, which you mentioned. What happened uh, around her house? Yeah, so that's Danielle Hodges. Um, she's lucky enough to be going over to Paris to speak at the International Anti-Fracking Summit. Um, some folks in Washington, D.C. heard about her story. And just to briefly tell you what she's been going through, they bought their house, um, her and her husband, both uh, Indigenous. They were given uh, um, a piece of land out there and which they bought from the state government and they built their first family home. They got four kids aged between 7 and 17. And uh, after six weeks, they started getting headaches. The kids started getting blood noses, and they realised that there was 19 active coal seam gas wells within two kilometres of their house, and some of them were just at the end of their street, 400 metres away, and unfortunately they hadn't been told. Wow, that's brutal. And so what do you hope to achieve when you do go to the Paris Talks? So since I met Danielle last year in August, uh, we've gone and spoken to the New South Wales Premier, Mike Baird, We've gone and talked to um, prime ministers and now it's her chance to speak on the international kind of uh, arena to talk about the health impacts, uh, talk about the stress and the mental health impacts that come along with living in a gas field and she'll be meeting with 130 other um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people from around the world who are living in similar conditions. So that will really highlight uh, what's happening here what's happening in Sydney, what's happening in Camden, and um, connect with other people around the world. So we should get a bit of media on the way to Paris and on the way home. 
So I think it's time for us to take our first track for the show, and uh, it is one from quite a, quite a few years ago. We'll talk <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about why you brought it on afterwards because it's quite the saga, and it's the Pogues. So which song do we have? Uh, this song's called South Australia. It's a bit of a wake up song. So today's a bit of a hot and dreary day, but this is a bit of a loud one. So bear with us. I was born Cave away, Holloway In South Australia, round Cape Horn listening there to the Pogues on FBI 94.5. My name's Ash Berdebez and my guest on Out of the Box today is Dan Robbins. And you you have, you know, kind of forged a bit of a, a life out of activism and it kind of one of the biggest things that you've been to 
in uh, in your many years, or the biggest initial thing you've been to, was a Woomera Detention Centre. Now, Woomera is quite remote, isn't it? It's out in the desert. Yeah, that's right. How so did you get there? I was living in Melbourne. Um, it was around 2002, and I was playing in bands at the time and helping out with a community-based PA company called Blackstar PA Hire. And um, one of the guys, Ian, called me and said, do you want to jump in a truck and go out to Woomera, to the detention centre? There's going to be an, a nationwide action against mandatory detention. And I said yes, and I had no idea where Woomera was. Um, I was still quite young. What, Didn't, was, yeah. what was the detention centre like when you went there? Uh, when we arrived, there was hundreds of us from around Australia camping in the desert, and as we moved closer towards the fences, it was um, it was pretty horrible, actually. All the men and women had been divided into two separate camps that looked like concentration camps to me. It was razor wire at the top of the fence and steel bars in between us and the refugees. So what was the detention? Like, I mean, you know, when you, when you first saw the detainees, what kind of response did you get from them? Um, that was pretty harrowing. Uh, there was, they hadn't seen people come out to the middle of the desert before to visit them. So there was this idea that they were stuck and lost in transition in the middle of a desert. And so when we did get there, uh, men and women were screaming and crying out the words Azadi, which means freedom in Iranian. And um, we would shout it back to them. And as we moved closer, yeah, they were quite emotional. Even though the police separated us, they were quite happy to see us there. How many protesters were there? About a thousand at its peak from Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide. Wow. And so at what point, you know, how did this happen when the fences started getting actually physically torn down? Yeah, so it was a pretty amazingly organised protest. People sat around, even though there was a thousand of us in a large circle and um, came up with ideas of what we were going to do next. And it was um, voted upon that we move towards the the camp, uh, the Woomera Detention Centre, and see if we could communicate with the refugees. But uh, as we got closer, um, fences were pushed down and one of the fences was broken open and soon women and children um, were being passed through the fence and um, put into cars and taken out of the desert, which was, for me as a 19-year-old who really disagreed with mandatory detention, was quite amazing to see... Um, and to see people get in their cars and get those refugees back to places like Sydney and Melbourne where they later got permanent residency was pretty empowering. So then what happened to Woomera Detention Centre itself after the demonstration? It was closed down and never operated again. That's a success. It's a roaring success. It was. It was great. It's amazing. And did any, anything happen to any of the protesters after or during, during releasing the refugees? Because I imagine if you have police there watching... Yeah. Something's going to go down. Yeah, not everyone was successful. One of my friends um, got in her van with a few of the protesters and refugees and was driving out and got caught and ended up um, in the police station with a number of other refugees. And the word Azadi, freedom, was something that was very um, strong word at the time and thrown around, and a lot of them um, end up with that word still on them today, uh, Azadi, freedom. They tattooed it upon themselves when they were in those jail cells. And so if you ever meet anyone with that tattoo, there's a good <laughs> chance they were at Woomera in 2002. Amazing. And you've got one of those yourself, do you? Yeah, I do. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> pretty embarrassing. <laughs> so I reckon we should just whack on a track now. And oh, thank you so much for bringing this one on. <laughs> so why did you want to bring on a Weaker Thens track? Um, I guess before um, I left the small town that I lived in in Victoria and moved to the city, 
Um, I was a, a much happier and more idealistic human being, I guess. And I, one of the bands that really um, made me feel um, like a normal kid in a small town was um, The Weaker Then. So I wanted to be a creative writer. I wanted to be a journalist. And I remember listening to John K. Sampson's lyrics, um, mostly his lyrics, and um, just being amazed by what he was putting together. I think he's an associate professor now in creative writing over in Canada, but at the time he was just another guy in a punk band called Propagandy. But this is a weekend. <laughs> Which is amazing. Um, yeah, even you print out these lyrics, they're just actual poems. So listen along. It's uh, Aside by The Weaker Thens, brought in by my guest today. It is Daniel Robbins. Decisive stare, the time it takes to get from here to there. My ribs that show through t shirts and these shoes I got for free. I'm unconsoled, I'm lonely. Telephones and shopping malls and knives and Drowning in the pools of other lives Rely a bit too heavily on alcohol and irony Get clobbered on by courtesy In love with love and lousy poetry
Eight people through their music. Out of the box.
it's already been so worth it getting you on the show, Daniel Robbins. That was a track by Dirty Three, who are playing on the 15th of December. So I think it's an FBI Presents gig. And so it's going to be at the Opera House on the 15th of December if you want to catch Dirty Three, who you heard just then with a song called Everything's Fucked. And uh, it was brought in by Daniel Robbins. So why did you want to bring that particular track on today? Um, I think I was talking to you about this song before and how it kind of brings up images of the desert and um, just trudging through the desert. And I guess returning to the story before about being in South Australia, uh, when I came back, I was uh, at uni and doing a bunch of creative writing courses. And um, I remember one of the first pieces that I was writing to uh, was a song called Sue's Last Ride by the Dirty Three. And... Um, yeah, at that time in Melbourne, uh, I think a lot of people were looking to the Dirty Three, not just because they're an amazing live act, but because of a lot of the images that comes along with listening to their music. So we were talking a moment ago about, you know, through through the magic of the Pogues, we were talking about you being in, a, in Woomera Detention Centre, breaking out the refugees. And now we're going to talk about a different protest, a completely different protest with a completely different goal, with a completely different feeling, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, you know, protest vibes, demonstration vibes. What were they for in 2006 when the G20 protest happened, when you were there? What were the vibes like? Yeah, well, the G20 protest was um, at a time when a lot of people had been protesting um, in Melbourne and around Australia against... Uh, the Iraq war and also trying to get climate change on the agenda and when those financial ministers came from all over the world to meet in Melbourne and there was climate change just not on the agenda at all uh, a lot of people came from around Australia to have their voices heard and look it was there's mixed emotions about what happened at the G20 protests and what happens at these summit protests when they occur around the world uh, many different emotions come out and uh I remember on the day there was yeah lots of um, ruckus and affray that kind of occurred, but um, there was some beauty that came out of it with a lot of the music that was um, being played on the day. So uh, we're going to play Edith Piaf in a second, but um, somehow we're going to lead into it while painting a picture of the point at which this song started playing during a protest. So how what was going on around you before Edith Piaf started being cranked yeah. at a rather cranky time? I remember it really <laughs> clearly. It was on... Collins Street in Melbourne and there was a large police line and a large bunch of people who'd um, come to have their voices heard and try and talk about the issues they wanted to get on the agenda and um, in between the large group of police and the large group of um, people I remember a girl skating past on her skateboard wearing a red tutu at the time I've still got photos of it I'll have to show you one day and she skated up to the barricades reached across the barricade grabbed the um, truncheon of the police officer and started to swing it around and it just changed the whole <laughs> pace of the protest um, there were people trying to calm it down and uh, people getting upset and then a guy who still lives in Newtown, Chris Lego, who I think you've had on this show before, came through <laughs> with a wheelie bin sound system um, playing Non Legretta Rian by Edith Piaf and it just calmed everybody down it's quite a beautiful moment Bien pour ma fête, ni 
mes chagrins, mes plaisirs. Je n'ai plus besoin de balayer les amours avec leur trémolo. Balayer pour toujours, je repars à zéro. I hope you're picturing in slow motion a ruckus unfolding at a demonstration against the G at the G20 summit when you hear that song forevermore. Uh, that was brought in by my guest on Out of the Box today, Daniel Robbins. And so that, that protest, that G20 protest at which this was wheeled out in an actual wheelie bin, this song, um, that had, you know, flow on, uh, I guess, results for you. A uh, bit of a, I don't know. How would how do you put this? You actually felt the wrath three months later. Yeah, that's right. So for many of us who were attending the G20 protest, um, there's many mixed feelings, I said, and regret was one of them, and other ones <laughs> were um, not regretting anything at all. And um, But there was definitely a fallout, and the fallout came very hard for those of us that lived up in Sydney who returned home from the G20 protests and um, in March of the following year, um, the police came looking for people and came to their houses and went through my house and um, took photos and there was seven or eight different people in suits going through my house. Going so you through. were there when it happened? No, but my housemates were oh, and no. uh, they were pulled out of bed at six in the morning and put into the lounge room. So it uh, it really did have an effect um, on many people who whose doors were kicked in around Australia after that protest and um, ongoing court cases um, because of the, the protests that happened. It was um, after the September 11th attacks and uh, anyone who was protesting at the time was seen to be not just a protester but a possible um, terrorist threat or a threat to national security. So ASIO, like the terrorism unit, came it, to your house? Yeah, that's right. I remember I was working in a bar in Newtown called the Union Hotel and they went there and the anti-terror investigation unit asked if um if if we were there and they said no so people lost jobs they lost all types of um things they went to uh, universities and um asked um where we were it's all really had an effect on people's lives and people still dealing with that today i think um the police crackdown on protesters at that point in history was pretty severe but um a lot of us got through it uh and moved on to other and better things so you had to go through a bit of a court case for that one, didn't you? Yeah, it was a constant court case for about two years. Um, but uh, in the end, I think the judge's words were, look, there's plenty of people my age in the 60s who went to very similar protests and came out of them with fines and things but went on to do um, great things. So he encouraged me and some others to um, 
go out and do some of our own community service. And uh, through that court case, I kind of thought about going and teaching um, out in the desert for a while or out in the country areas and to teach in an Indigenous community. And so um, I took that advice and went out there for a couple of years afterwards. Actually, let's talk a bit about you working in... It was Walgett, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So Walgett, Walgett's a bit of a... I, I look it up Walgett to just see what you know the internet says about it, and I found a bit of a, a bit of an interesting headline: Walgett Community College, a hotbed of violence and criminal behaviour. So, when you were there, did you feel like you were um, being able to teach properly? Um, yeah, uh, when I first arrived, it trying to teach history as a white Australian to a ninety nine percent Indigenous group of teenagers is pretty. Um, very real kind of experience and uh yeah look there there was um a lot of issues in the community and a lot of violence but at the time there were some really committed teachers who'd come from all over australia to teach there and we were committed to um, helping um, the gomeroy people of that area and we worked really closely with the aboriginal elders with the parents uncles and aunties to make sure that those kids got what they needed and breakfast programs and community radio station at the school uh, some of the ideas that came out of that time really changed the school and um it, and it, there's always a up and down flow effect at schools but um if you have a committed bunch of teachers and principals um you can really achieve a lot and i feel like we did at the time what, what do you reckon was different about teaching in that community in particular as it would have been you know compared to teaching in another school um, Walgett has a really um, intense history. That's where you might have heard of the Freedom Rides in the 60s um, when they took off from Sydney Uni and in a bus with Charles Perkins and went around to country areas in New South Wales. One of the places they stopped and were pushed off the road by non-Indigenous locals was in Walgett. Uh, they were threatened to be killed. Um, and I remember Charles Perkins and others went to the local swimming pool and local cinema... Uh, which were all segregated in the 60s uh, in Australia and um, pushed for those for those places to be desegregated. And so teaching in Walgett was very different from um, teaching here in Sydney. Uh, there were still those racial divisions that were occurring. Um, so how did, that, how did you see that in the town? Was it kind of split town? <clears throat> yeah, so right down the middle of the town is Fox Street and on either side um, there's, a, there's a big racial divide. Um, hopefully it's changed today, but when I was there, uh, I remember walking over to one side when I first arrived at night and one of the young kids saying, so you probably shouldn't walk in this area. This is the Aboriginal area and the white areas on the other side of town. And uh, I had never been in a place like that before. I didn't realise Australia uh, still existed like that. But um, it was, yeah, it took a lot of getting used to, but I learned a lot of from the Indigenous people of that area. In, in particular... Got Sam Cook out of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So working with the kids and their aunties and uncles on the Yama radio station at the local high school, um, we had no real CDs because we'd all moved there um, from other places. And Margie Hill, one of the elders, came in one day with about 20 CDs and I think about 19 of them were Sam Cook CDs. So <laughs> uh, this was one of the songs we used to play. Yeah. 
tuned into Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. My guest in the studio today is Daniel Robbins. My name's Ash Berdebez. And that right there was Sam Cooke with A Change Is Gonna Come, something you picked up from an Aboriginal lady in Walgett when you were teaching there. So you ended up leaving Walgett and leaving teaching there. Do you remember why you left? Uh, yeah, I got a job at the time to go and teach in London at a school in Camden. And um, I'd been in Walgett for about two or three years and um, thought it was a good time to move on, and so went to head over there. And uh, we were talking a bit before about the fallout of the G20 uh, demonstrations, and it didn't stop at that extra two years of court cases. The fallout went all the way until you were you started your new career in teaching. So what happened when you tried to actually get into London for to start your new job? Yeah, that's right. So um, I was... Um, asked by the school to come over to London and Camden and teach over there and then um, I got ready to go and about two weeks before I went um, the the uh, UK border force rang me and said look 
um, we've seen you've been protesting over in Australia. There's constant protests over here at the moment around the G20 in London, and we're just a bit worried at the moment that it might be a threat to you our see, national security. <laughs> you're a threat to national security. <laughs> yeah. Did you think that you were at all reasonably a threat to national security? No, I didn't think so at the time. <laughs> But uh, it was I hadn't <laughs> really, was. <laughs> I didn't really see that coming, and yeah. so I had booked the ticket and I'd said goodbye to everyone in Walgett, and I'd moved back to Sydney and was about to get on the plane when I found out about it. Rough. So, how, did you end up ever getting over there? Yeah. So I sat around in despair for a couple of days, and then thought, look. I've saved this money and I'm ready to go. And if I'm not going to go to London, maybe I'll go somewhere else. So I booked a ticket to Madrid and I left the next day. And what was going on in Madrid when you got there? Madrid was amazing. Um, I arrived there and walked into the middle of Madrid and uh, maybe 4,000 people had uh, occupied the centre square uh, and were making... They had their own first aid tent, their own food, their own water, their own shelter uh, in the middle of the city and were calling for changes because of the huge unemployment. Um, they just really lost faith in the whole system over there. So this is part of the wider Occupy movement. Is this fairly early on in Occupy? Yeah. So this was um, at the very beginnings of the Occupy kind of movement that was happening around the world and my first um, kind of introduction to it was in Spain and just watching people till three in the morning sitting in this square voting with their hands um, and making decisions as a group with within with hundreds and then thousands of them as it went on was pretty amazing for me to see. When you came back to Sydney, you were part of the Occupy there? Yeah, I went down to visit and um, just got up and told people about what I'd seen in Spain and we... Um, there was very different issues in Australia, though. I guess in Spain, you got 50% unemployment, even wow. higher among um, young people between 16 and 30. Um, and at that time, they were spending millions of dollars to have the Pope come into town. And uh, people were just uh, very up in arms. In Australia, the issues around Occupy were very, um, very wide. And uh, I remember talking to... Um, people who were there at the time and yeah there was a lot of issues around what people wanted. But I guess that sounds like a potentially not a great way to get things done though a lot of people having different demands. Did you kind of feel like Occupy Sydney had an impact? Um, it was the longest running occupation anywhere in the world so Occupy Sydney went for about two years and ended up as like a homeless support base um, where they had food and solar-powered cooking material and water and uh, shelter for people that was there. But I remember thinking at the time, there's just too many issues here. And it was a guy called Noam Chomsky who came out and spoke. And talking to him, he said, mining is the biggest issue you've got, you guys should be concentrating on in Australia. It's really affecting your communities and your future. So you actually got to speak to this guy, the, the most quoted guy in... Uh the most quoted living man in the world. The other ones are, you know, the Bible and Plato and Freud, <laughs> etc. Yeah, I think he uh, won a Peace Prize, Sydney Peace Prize. And so when he came to Sydney Town Hall to speak, he asked that um, the Occupy Sydney people come down and meet with him. And um, we sat down and had a chat with him near Town Hall Steps. And, um, yeah, he's, he's very... Um, clear message to me at least was that mining was something that was really going to um, jeopardise our our way of life here in Australia if we continued to do it en masse near water sources and near communities and near farmlands. 
And so that clearly had a bit of a flow on effect into what you did with the rest of your life. Now that you're with Lock the Gate, so you're opposing, you know, in unsafe mining in many communities all over Australia. So do you think it was actually Noam Chomsky talking to you about that that made you make that move? Yeah, definitely. Um, after that conversation, after interviewing him, uh, I made a clear decision that I was going to move back to the northwest of New South Wales and work with Indigenous communities and farmers who didn't traditionally work together and maybe get them all to work together to um, try and push some of those mining companies out of those areas that are so important for farming and for Indigenous people. So we've got The Clash here to play next and Guns of Brixton is the track that we're going to go with. So why this one? Um, well, I finally did get over to London um, at the time. I, I just went from Madrid over to London and at the time there was lots of protests happening around there and Guns of Brixton was one of the ones uh, that was played often by people who were scared that things were going to happen and it was also a song that they played Occupy Sydney when they thought the police were going to kick them out of Martin Place.
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. With me, Ash Bertabez, and my guest on Out of the Box today, Daniel Robbins. And that was The Clash that you heard just there with Guns of, of Brixton. And now I just kind of wanted to give you a bit of a vignette. So there's a video on YouTube that says something like, protester climbs drill rig. And there's this, this tiny silhouette of a figure going up this huge chunk of weird metal and then getting to the top where there's nothing to hold on to, standing up and delivering an impassioned speech to onlookers below. And uh, so how tall was that drill rig, Daniel? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe somewhere <laughs> between 15 and 20 feet, maybe a bit bigger. And how long did you end up spending on the top of that drill rig? Um, I didn't intend to spend any time up there, but I ended up there for about 27 hours in the middle of summer in Queensland, which wasn't very... I don't recommend doing that. Do you reckon it was like a 40-degree day? How hot do you reckon it was? It was getting late 30s, yeah. Oh, God. So, I mean, let's go back to the beginning of this protest. What was the protest about in the first place? Um, so I mentioned before that I was working with farmers in northwest New South Wales um, against coal seam gas um, that's expanding into that area. And on my school holidays from teaching, I went up to Queensland and visited some other farming communities in the Kerry Valley, just over the border of New South Wales. And um, when I arrived, there were there was a whole bunch of farmers standing in front of this dairy farm, um, and the police were putting farmers into the police vans and driving them away. And then a large drill rig. Um, Wait, across- they're putting farmers in the police vans. Sorry, like were they doing anything wrong? Um, they were trying to stop a large coal seam gas rig from going onto their farm. Mm. Mm. And so I think the police had arrested maybe five or six of the farmers and thrown them into police vans. And then the drill rig went through. I remember standing next to one of the farmers and he was just almost in tears, Rod Anderson. And I just I saw a moment where the police weren't looking and jumped over the fence and climbed up the drill rig. And didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, but um, my phone had reception because I was up a little bit higher. <laughs> no one else did. <laughs> no, well, I didn't when I was down below. So when I got up there, I messaged a few people and told them what was going on, and they called other people, and soon uh, it had a lot of national media. And that was really effective during a, a, like a state election campaign just to get coal seam gas and farmlands as an issue on the on the TV. Interesting. And what was the fallout of that what, when you went up there on the drill rig? Had you essentially broken the law? Um, yeah, I think I'd, uh, there was pretty peaceful action. Nothing was broken. No one was hurt. So I think um, trespass was the word that they used, <laughs> but uh, the judge at the time let me off. Uh, no fine, no conviction. And how did the police deal with you when they got you down from the drill rig? Um, one of them was really excited that he was on television and <laughs> <laughs> said that it was it was good to be a negotiator on a day like this because there's so much media but um the other police weren't so supportive and um, i hadn't had food or water for a long time maybe 27 hours and then i still wasn't given food or water when i got into the police station and um yeah so i asked to be taken to hospital and that's the only time i got food and water wow yeah and when you ended up going to court about this who was the judge What, what was their stake um, the judge was pretty shocked that I'd been placed in a police station holding cell for two days and wasn't given food or water for the first part of it and had to be hospitalised. So uh, he asked the police why they'd done that and they couldn't answer. He was a landowner from the area who was against coal seam gas and coal mining in the area. And so 
he um, recommended that I be let go immediately and have no fine and no conviction. Amazing. So we're going to take a track from Patsy Klein. Which one do we have? Yeah, so this was when I was up on top of the rig. Um, some of the lovely people who'd come down from the Northern Rivers yelled out, what music do you want to listen to at about one in the morning? And um, because it was just after midnight, I could only think of this one song that I heard when I was in Walgett, and it's um, Patsy Cline's Walking After Midnight. Wondrous Patsy Klein, brought in to Out of the Box today by Daniel Robbins. Where did your love from Pat- for Patsy Klein come from? Uh, so that was when I was teaching out in Walgett as well. Um, one of the few things that really helped you connect with uh, the community out there was music. And so on Wednesday nights, I'd go around to one of the students' uh, parents' house and the mum would be singing that song in the lounge room. They had a drum kit set up, bass amp, guitar amp, and a mic. And I remember the mum would sing... Uh, the dad was on guitar, the uncle TikTok was on drums, and I would play bass. And uh, yeah, they taught me a lot of Patsy Klein songs. <laughs> That's awesome. So we've got one last song for the hour, and then we're going to be all wrapped up, and it's all going to be a lovely dream. So Blonde Redhead is going to be our next track, and I wanted to understand where this came into your ears. Like, where where did you first hear Blonde Redhead? I first heard Blonde Redhead um, when I was in Tokyo. 
when I was teaching there years ago, and um, this song I just never heard it. I I went out um, and um, with a friend of mine, and we woke up in the morning and this song was playing in the apartment um, we're at in Tokyo, and I think the first words are something like "laying on my back I hear music," and then it talks about the chaos of um, whichever city, probably New York they were referring to, but in mm-hmm. Tokyo at the time, it's just such a it really is a crazy place, and I had a strange um, view of of Tokyo. I just thought there was it was very fast paced and very chaotic, and people weren't always that happy. Um, but this song really kind of made sense of a lot of the different emotions I was going through when I was in Tokyo at the time. So you were teaching, but you're also part of the punk scene when you're in Tokyo, making a couple of zines. What were a couple of the zines that you made? Yeah, so the first zine I made was just um, called No Vacation. It was about uh, a lot of the different um, punk bands that were playing just in rehearsal studios. They would book out a rehearsal studio and have five bands play for five dollars and. Um, then the second zen I made was more about domestic violence that was happening uh, in Tokyo at the time. and um, Is it pretty prevalent? Yeah, it was. A lot of my Japanese friends um, really highlighted the fact that uh, there were a lot of big problems in Tokyo that that were being talked about at the time. And um, yeah, the, the domestic violence thing w- was really being talked about on the front pages, which was good because incidents happened that brought it to the fore and I think that's what's happening here in Australia now but the incident over there was the consulate general from Japan was in Canada and um, actually punched his own wife in the face and broke her nose I think and uh, when he was arrested he said "Um, I don't question your culture don't question mine wow and a lot of Japanese people were very opposed to that statement and made it very clear and I think that really changed um, things in that area did you ever experience any kind of domestic violence situations unfolding when you were there, like firsthand? Yeah, yeah, there was times. Um, I remember being in Osaka and uh, there was a couple with their child pushing a pram down the street and um, got into an argument and then he just did what's called a roundhouse kick and he kicked her and she fell to the pavement and she got back up and they kept talking, kept walking away. And it was... I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, I know domestic violence happens everywhere and it's a problem. And I think at that time, um, a lot of those things were changing in Japan. And hopefully we can see similar changes here because it is still a huge problem in Australia. So this blonde redhead track was showed to you by friend Tomoko? Yeah. What was she doing in Japan? So Tomoko uh, was a a painter and... um, a photographer, and she was photographing a lot of the um, things that were happening in Tokyo at the time around um, unemployment and people um, being uh, having to become homeless because they're losing their jobs and moving to Yogi Park. And um, she was also looking into domestic violence and the suicide rate and things like that. But yeah, she seems like a fellow activist. <laughs> she was she was an artist, and she was. Um, telling me that as a woman and as an artist to be um, over the age of 30 and not to be married, she was treated as a second-class citizen. And um, I really had a lot of respect for her that she just continued on with her art and unashamedly so and did it. And even when there wasn't a wide audience for it, she used her art to get through a lot of messages and to try and change um, her country. And I guess it really inspired me to come back and try and make similar changes here in Australia. 
Thanks so much for coming on Out of the Box, Daniel Robbins. I've had a lovely time having you on. Great songs. And if you want to listen back to the show, you can always do so through the podcast. So um, is there anything that people should know about for your um, work with CSG at the moment, things that they can help out if they're so inclined? Yeah, so there's one woman called Danielle Hodges, who's an Indigenous woman who lives out in Camden with her husband, Brian, and um, they're going over to Paris in a few weeks. I'll and they'll be speaking at the International Anti-Fracking Conference over there. They've never been overseas before. They're really excited to go there. Paris is not a, um, a, a great place to go at the moment, but they realise that their message to tell people about um, the health impacts of fracking is really important. And so they're crowdfunding at the moment to um, pay for them to get over there. They've already bought their tickets, but um, it would be good to be reimbursed. So um, if you go onto Stop CSG Camden uh, Facebook page, you should be able to find that out. Otherwise, just type in Australian Mothers Against Gas. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Ash. Here's Blonde Redhead with In Particular.